Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. This is a podcast about cookies, the tiny strands of data that follow us around the internet, allowing advertisers and websites to remember us, the pages we visit, our passwords and the contents of our shopping carts. We're going to spend the next 50 minutes or so talking about third-party cookies, what they are, who's using them, why Google and Apple are trying to remove them, and what the specific implications of this will be for sports marketing from the perspective of sponsor brands and for rights holders seeking to commercialise their teams, tournaments and other inventory via digital channels. To help us understand what a post-cookie internet might look like, we asked two experts to join us. Dr. Augustine Fu is a world-renowned leader in the topic of digital marketing and ad fraud. Joining Augustine is Phil Stefan, director at the sports data consultancy Two Circles, who has just published a white paper looking at this subject, which I'll link to in the show notes of this podcast. If you're a sports data nerd, hold the purse strings of a brand marketing budget or just someone like me who wants to know more about how internet marketing really works, I promise this is a conversation you'll really want to hear. If you like the podcasts, you'll love the unofficial partner newsletter that goes direct to the inbox of thousands of senior executives across the global sports business every Thursday. To join them, sign up via unofficialpartner.com. First of all, Augustine Fu, Dr. Augustine Fu, thank you very much. And Phil Stefan from Two Circles, thanks very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Thank you. So this is a question about cookies, and I'm going to ask, first of all, Augustine, just to set us up. My, the way into this is we're looking at the recent sort of stories around cookies and privacy, and we're going to then ask what this means for the sports market. But just sort of step back for a moment before we get into that, I mean, this is coming from my sort of idiot's view of digital marketing, which is the big selling point was, you know, direct communication, targeting of audience, right time, right place, etc. And cookies, it's a simple idea that I can get my head around. I'm sure that brand um, marketers get their head around and are excited about. And that's been the story of, of internet marketing. Cookies, as far as I can see, are the sort of one of the, the basic sort of engines of that promise. And what I want to do is, I guess, first ask you, Augustine, what what is a cookie? What does it do? And what is the, the current sort of situation with them? All right. So in terms of cookies, we have to differentiate first-party cookies versus third-party cookies. So cookies are nothing more than a small bit of code or text uh, that gets planted into the browser, right? The first party cookie, for example, when you go to New York Times or any publisher and you log in, they set a cookie so then you don't have to log in for every page you want to look at, right? You can remain logged in. The cookie says you are in a logged in state. So it's just a little bit of code that resides in the browser that tells the browser the state, right? You're in a logged in state. So those are first party cookies and they're very useful. Uh, Third party cookies come in when ad tech companies put code onto the publisher's page. So for example, when a person is visiting New York Times, they know they're interacting with New York Times, but they don't know that there's a hundred other trackers on the page being loaded in by other ad tech companies. So that's why we call those third party uh, third parties. 
and the cookies that they set are called third-party cookies. The reason they do that is to track that user across multiple websites, right? So if there's double-click code on the New York Times website, double-click can plant a cookie, a third-party cookie on that user's browser. When that user visits a different website or 10 other different websites, if those sites have double-click code on them, they can also uh, set a cookie and then read those cookies to say, okay, well, this is the same person that visited not only New York Times, but these other 10 sites. The reason the ad tech companies do that, they call it cross-site tracking, is so that they can say, oh, well, this user visited these sites, and based on those website visitation patterns, they can infer who that person is and what they like. Now, you can start to imagine some of that can be accurate, but some of it can be wildly inaccurate, right? So, for example, when a person visits uh, Amazon.com, like, what, what can you infer about that person, right? They might then say, oh, well, they looked at some baby, baby products. So is it that they just had a baby or is it that they're looking up a baby, uh, a, a gift for a friend who had a baby, right? So a lot of the inferences are suspect at best. So that's how the entire ad tech industrial complex has built up, been built up around this concept of targeting, right, using cookies. So the idea is that when that particular cookie, which is a kind of an anonymous representation of that person, when they show up on a particular website, the ad tech companies will then frantically say, oh, let's go target this person because we think we know all these things about them. Right. So that's how the targeting works. But uh, there's been more and more research that's now showing that the targeting is not very accurate because the underlying data is not very accurate because a lot of that data is based on inferences made from website visitation patterns. Right. But I'll kind of pause there to, to just say that's what cookies are and what they're for. Right. So first party cookies are set by the publisher. Third party cookies are set by other third party ad tech companies that have JavaScript code on the page. OK, so, Phil, just put some sports marketing, sports industry context onto this. And I will point people towards there's a um, two circles got a new report, sport and the third party cookie. How sport needs to adapt as the cookies crumble, which is a very nice little uh, thing. I see what you did there. And just, yeah, put some put us into context in terms of the sports market for the unofficial partner audience. Cool. So just building on what Augustine, Augustine said there, that um, in a sports context, so completely agree that there's the third party cookies that are really useful in one in one sense, but actually led some poor marketing practices in 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 other senses and just to take that example here um augustine gave on inferring behavior in a sports context using third-party cookies you might go and see someone who's consumed lots of content around a particular football club or football results and infer from that they're a liverpool fan because they're reading a lot of liverpool liverpool um content but in, in reality, they might just be a generic football fan. They might actually actively dislike Liverpool and you'll be going on and assuming then from a marketing perspective, they might appear as an audience you can buy as a Liverpool FC audience. And a sponsor of that club might be activating against that audience, thinking that they're targeting Liverpool fans who are brilliant for them to activate the partnership to. Or Liverpool Football Club themselves might be trying to reach that audience through their own marketing thinking they are Liverpool fans, where in fact they are, that contains a lot of users who are not only 
not Liverpool fans, but actively anti-Liverpool. So the targeting of them for sponsorship activations is actually using a third-party cookie can produce negative results and be really poor, poorly utilise all the IP and the association the brand has built with that um, built with that built with that club. And for Liverpool themselves, they'll be getting poor marketing efficiency because they think they're targeting an audience who aren't actually the audience that they intend to target because they're relying on this inferred data from third-party cookies. So you can see that it's a practical application of third-party cookies and some of the some of the positives around that enables much more effective targeting of users when done correctly, but also some of the negatives around that, which is why I actually think the depreciation of third-party cookies, and that's what we're not talking about a cookie future, we're talking about depreciation of third-party cookies, First-party cookies become much more important. That actually, it will, if if rights owners within the sports industry adapt and brands who are partnering with sports properties adapt effectively, so you much more effectively utilise first-party cookies. It will drive a lot more effective marketing practices, as well as create new opportunities for brands and and rights owners themselves. So, in terms of the jeopardy in this story, that the, the the reason there's I can see from if I am in charge of a marketing budget, a lot of my money is being wasted. So what we're saying, so in terms of the, the cookies are sending me in the wrong direction, I'm making the wrong inferences about the audience, I'm getting bad information. And then on the on the fan side or the consumer side, I'm also going to irritate the fan by making assumptions about me and, and targeting me with, with duff badly targeted ads augustine is that is that sort of does that capture the are there is there any other downside i'm just wondering why there is this movement to get rid of them where why now well it's because of the privacy regulations so we've had gdpr uh in the eu for a number of years now and then in the us there's the california version called ccpa and really what's happening is the, the beginnings of the enforcement of those privacy regulations, right? So some of the governments are now fining the big ad tech companies for uh, privacy violations or not gathering consent before they gathered people's data. So the reason we're making this distinction between first party and third party cookies is that uh, when a user is visiting New York Times, they understand the implicit contract, right? They're getting... New York Times content for free in exchange for watching ads. Uh, so, so if New York Times asks them for consent, they're very likely to give consent because they know they're uh, visiting New York Times. What is unknown to most users are the other ad tech companies that have JavaScript code on the page that's harvesting their information without their knowledge or consent. That's the difference between first party and third party. So the reason, uh, you know, we, we now have these moves that are happening, both from uh, Google and also from Apple, to protect the privacy of the consumers. It's, it's not so much it's out of the goodness of their heart. It's actually them protecting or reducing their own risks, right? Because if they don't do this, then they're going to be out of compliance with respect to the laws. So... For Apple, what they're doing is they're, they've already done away with third-party cookies in Safari for a number of years, but now they will additionally do away with uh, the ability to do those uh, pixel tracking in email, so they call it email privacy. They will also do away with uh, access to the device identifiers on iOS devices. So previously, 
uh, apps and a lot of third parties could just harvest all the IDFAs off of Apple devices, right? Now they, they're going to have to ask permission before they can collect that data. Uh, and then the the next thing that's coming up in iOS 15 is that they're also going to block the access to IP address. Uh, so there's some technical reasons for that. But all of those moves that Apple is making is really to make sure that they are in compliance with the law. Right. So and, you know, in doing so, it's actually making it it's helping privacy on the part of the consumers. But it's making it harder for the ad tech companies to to do what they had been doing. Now, on top of that, you know, we we talked about the bad targeting. On top of that, the we you should know that there's the uh, problem of ad fraud, right? Where the bots are going to deliberately visit a collection of websites to make themselves appear to be a particular audience, right? An audience that is uh, highly desirable, meaning one that the advertisers want to target because then the bots can actually earn higher CPMs. So, you know, I'll just use an example in some of my client work. I serve pharma companies and they like to target their ads to doctors and, you know, specifically oncologists, right? These are specialty uh, specialists. So the bots will deliberately visit a collection of medical journal websites or medical information websites. And then to the eyes of the ad tech companies, oh, well, because they visited all these medical sites, they must be a doctor. Again, the inference issue, right? So then they infer that these are doctors. So later when the pharmaceutical companies want to target those audiences, they're going to pay extra high CPMs to target them, right? So on top of the bad targeting of real humans, we have the additional problem of bots pretending to be certain audience segments just based on their website visitation patterns. So in doing away with that, uh, I called it, you know, we're going to accidentally help the marketers do better marketing because we're actually reducing some of these uh, problem areas that they're they're facing right now. And a lot of them are not even aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely agree with that. And just to uh, add to your um, to your question, Richard, that also the, the, obviously there's a there's a compliance um, and uh, with, with changes in regulation going on. But it's no surprise that also that the big kind of. The big changes are being are being driven more and more advanced stages by Apple, who've got a who have got a business interest in making it harder for um, companies that rely on advertising to um, to be successful. Because their their model is not an advertising model. Google is an advertising model. Amazon increasingly becoming uh, uh, adding advertising to their advertising advertising to their mix, but. Um, Google is the real competitor to, to Amazon, and they are driven a lot of, of what they're doing is, is, is driven by advertising on the open open web. Um, so Apple making it harder for that to happen and disrupt that business model is a clear business advantage for them to do so. It's not a surprise that simultaneously alongside this, they've started creating some advertising solutions through Apple devices that now enables them to, to offer solutions that, that um to brands who are looking for new ways of targeting users that they that they they've now switched off. So I think there's you know Apple often like you know I think privacy is like central to to their business vision and, and mission, but there's also a, a business advantage for them taking taking that that course. And um, and it's actually I think it's the big players who own massive amounts of first party data, and that is the likes of Amazon and Google uh, and uh, and Apple. Who who are best placed to adapt to to this this future like publishers who 
who are reliant on third party advertising on the open web plugging into Google they that is a fun this is a fundamental threat to their to their ability to to survive because they they will be their the value of the ads on their on their sites and the targeting is going to become less effective without them having masses of first party data to sit underneath so that whole kind of rising importance of first party data actually and switching off a third party data the third party debt cookies has been driving a lot of targeting on the web it actually like the big the big players with big first party data are, are situated to to come out of this come out of this well so so it's, it will pose fundamental challenges to google's business model but they've got enough first party data to enable them to to respond to it it's i'm i'm more worried about um i think it'll be more impactful on those those publishers who rely on third-party advertising um, uh, on the open web than being a being a big walled garden of themselves sitting on those first-party data. Quite often in the sports conversation, Phil, we replace publishers with sports rights holders. There's almost a temptation to put them in that role, and then sponsors playing the role of the you know the the brand. Is that a is that a correct analogy? And, and are what does this mean? for sport because i'm thinking well actually sponsorship around big events is a is a way of you know is a key way of targeting a particular audience it's less clever and tricky and granular but it's fairly obvious yeah. that you know you can second guess the type of people who are going to be watching the euros or the copper copper america or what? wimbledon or whatever i'm just what does this mean can you just sort of draw a line for from that generic conversation into the what this means for potential sponsorship values, you know, in terms of around sport. Yeah, so I think I think it's really I think it's um, it's a huge opportunity for sponsorship and a huge opportunity for for rights owners because sport sport engages audiences unlike you know most things like look at the the, the the engagement in Europe around the Euros at present. How many people over twenty million people watching um, England's victory over Ukraine over over the weekend. You know, the, the, I think that was about eighty percent share of, of of broadcast audiences over that period. So, massive audiences engaged, in which you can predict when they are engaging with the with the content. With time shifting, it's very difficult to know how am I, when am I reaching this audience if I'm if I'm activating a partnership or when I'm targeting uh, an audience. But around a major sport event. The audiences are quite pre- predictable. You can forecast roughly how many people watch it. You know when they're they're watching it, so it becomes a great platform for brands who are looking to reach an audience domestically or or region or pan regionally across Europe around the Euros or globally around the World Cup or a, uh, the Olympics or a, or a major uh, property like Wimbledon. Um, so that kind of ability to reach audiences at scale of a predictable size. Um, at a predictable time means that the inherent value of sponsorship um, is, is well retained compared to compared to like a lot of entertainment properties, which are very difficult to predict audiences, very difficult to know when people are consuming the content. So that inherent there's an inherent value then there. It's actually lots of these shifts in consumer behaviour and lots of changes in regulation um, isn't eroding too too much. And actually, the if Generally, rights owners, sports properties have been have been making a shift towards directly engaging with audiences rather than leaving it purely to um, broadcast partners to deliver content and then being one step removed from the people who are consuming it. So whether that be building 
their own um, websites, apps, their membership schemes, selling products directly, resell products directly, um, getting um, delivering OTT platforms and media media products directly into users, increasingly been building digital digital audiences in which they can communicate directly with and first party data on those audiences. Then that combined with that kind of like real time engagement at mass around sports properties is really powerful and is a really effective solution for brands looking to reach those audiences through the property itself. So if they can no longer rely on third party cookies to infer somebody is 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 watching the Euros or is following England or is a Harry Kane fan, if the properties own that data and, they, and they're engaging with those audiences directly alongside the broadcast, then what they're, and if you look at the way brand, brands are spending their money, it's broadcast and digital together, you've got an effective integrated solution using first party data to reach an audience through multiple touch points, through broadcast and digital, which is really powerful, really powerful. What that means to let, to, to, to utilize that and realize the, the potential value in that, you need to change the rights and the packages that you build for partners and you need to activate with them really smartly and you need to be able to have the underlying capabilities to reach those audiences and use first party data, data correctly. And and but if you can do that, I think actually lots of lots of rights owners will come out of this change with more valuable assets and with more potentially more valuable solutions they can offer to their their kind of brand partners. So I think it's actually I think it's a real it's a real opportunity for the industry um, to because. Because sport, that ability to engage with consumers, consumers want to hear from the football clubs they support, engage with the tournaments that they follow, um, engage with the the international federations, the um, national governing bodies who look after their sport that they care about. That emotional connection breeds a relationship which can create first party data, which is which as we've all been talking about, is going to be significantly more value as the value of third party data decreases. Augustine, did, I mean, do you broadly agree with Phil's point there? Yeah, very simply, you know, at least the, the way I take away it's uh, at least it's humans, because in in my research, um, there is so much fraud out there. There's so much bot activity out there. So whether it's display ads or video ads, uh, basically the bots are loading the web pages to cause the ads to load. So we have, you know, in some cases I'm seeing 50 times the fake inventory compared to the real inventory, right? And even if a tiny, tiny fraction of those ads get through, right, we assume that fraud detection works. So even if a tiny fraction of those uh, fake impressions get through, that's still billions of impressions that get through. These are fake impressions that get through. And the same thing is happening uh, with OTT and CTV. So we talk about streaming. Um, of course, humans are streaming more, right? And since the pandemic, most people were, were staying at home. So the, uh, the amount of streaming content, you know, the time spent on streaming has definitely gone way up. However, uh, it created an opportunity for the bots to also fake those streams and also create fake CTV ad impressions to sell. Right. So it fits right in with the advertiser's uh, desire for low cost 
ad impressions, right? So in digital, they can get lower and lower cost inventory to buy when they buy from open exchanges. So the same exact thing is uh, is playing out in CTV as it has been in, you know, display ads, video ads, mobile ads, right? When the marketers go looking for large quantities of very, very cheap ads, essentially what fills that gap is fraudulent impressions, right? The bots can mimic anything that you want to buy. So for me, it's like I've told some clients, if you need awareness, go back to billboards, go back to digital out of home, go back to sports marketing, right? Sports advertising, sponsorships, because at least those ads get in front of humans, right? If your ad isn't shown to humans in the first place, it can never have any marketing effect. It can never drive any outcomes, but a lot of times the marketers in digital, they're addicted to the wrong metrics, right? They're addicted to what I call the, the quantity metrics or the vanity metrics, right? Oh, we get a large number of impressions. We got a large number of clicks, but those clicks aren't humans. Humans don't click on your ads that much, right? It's the bots clicking on your ads. So it, they've created the appearance of engagement. They've created the appearance of performance. And very often I... I know from the uh, brand marketers, they're not actually tracking the digital marketing activities all the way through to the sales because very often they're saying, oh, well, we, we sell the soda or the soup in offline grocery stores. So they really don't even make an effort to track the – to correlate the, the digital marketing that happens online with the actual sales that happen offline. So it's very – it's a very convenient thing, right? They just look at digital metrics, like the quantity metrics, how many clicks did they get? How, uh, what, what was the average price they got on the, on this, you know, ads. And then they say, Oh, it's successful digital programs. Right. And so a lot of those sales, uh, especially the, the ones in the grocery stores would have happened anyway. Right. So here in the U S we have a few examples where the big marketers literally turned off a large chunk of their digital spending and saw no change in business outcomes, right? So P&G did that a number of years ago. They turned off $200 million of digital spend and saw no change in business outcomes. Chase, uh, the bank, reduced their programmatic reach from 400,000 websites showing their ads to just 5,000 websites showing their ads. That's a 99% decrease. And they saw no change in business outcomes. And finally, Uber... Uh, turned off about 120 million of their uh, digital spend. They were basically paying to get more people to install the Uber app. And when they did that, the app installs continued. So there was no change because those are people that wanted to install the Uber app anyway, not because they saw an ad and clicked on it. So what was happening is that the, those mobile exchanges were basically using uh, bot activity to simulate or create the impression that uh, they were causing those app installs when those app installs had already occurred. They were just falsifying the attribution records. So, you know, from my perspective, there's so much fraud in digital marketing uh, and that pervades into CTV and OTT that if the advertisers literally went back to basic, uh, you know, good old advertising like sports marketing, sports sponsorships, they'd already get better outcomes. I'm, I'm confused, Phil, because I we done a previous podcast um, a few weeks ago with the guys at Omnicom, and they were there was a point there about the level of digital inventory that rights holders are selling. 
I'm wondering, is it hmm. should they be selling more or less given this conversation? It depends what digital inventory they're selling. If it's digital in- inventory delivered via their own properties, which they haven't opened up to the third to to the open market, then you're not going to see the level of ad fraud that um, Augustine's been talking about. Because they they are delivering the ads and they're delivering those ads for their partners and monetizing it directly. So you switch off like the incentive for 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 um, fraudulent activity to go and like create artificial page impressions and get and artificial streams in order to create ad inventory which they are selling and they're they're realizing the return from it. So that that model that Augustine spent a lot of time. Um, taking us through is very prevalent when you've got open exchanges where where you you can go and deliver ads into those into those sites and you can monetize them you can monetize them yourselves but but sports properties are that are controlling that inventory themselves so if you can build out your your digital audiences if you can build more effective propositions for your audiences if you can deliver better content and better user experiences, you can create more inventory on your sites, more streams, more ad, more page imp- impressions, which then creates opportunity to deliver solutions for brands, which isn't purely advertising. So if you're, if you're only selling display advertising and pre-rolls on your site, then you're not, you're not delivering, using your digital inventory really effectively to deliver solutions for brands, which is what they're looking for, not just more ads. Um, but if you can control that, you can deliver really effective ads. You can you can use your social channels. You can use your direct engagement around events that you have. You can use your emails and app notifications and direct communications into into customers to deliver really effective marketing solutions, which you know are being which you know you're being interacted with with human beings. So I think what was increasingly see, and it, and it really works well when you're a big sports property, is that 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 driving brand reach and driving awareness, driving consideration, driving brand preference, sponsorship is brilliant for that, right? And it's we know it's happening. We know it's not fraudulent activity. It's driven by by massive engagement around sports properties globally, carried in third party media, delivered via broadcast, delivered directly through rights owners channels. That top of the funnel metrics, I think, as um, top top of the funnel impacts. I think Augustine's right that people will be looking, brands will be looking for more effective ways of doing that with widespread ad fraud, brand brand safety issues, depreciation, third party cookies. And so sports sponsorship is really well, uh, really well kind of set up to deliver that bottom, top of the funnel, those top of the funnel impact. But increasingly, rights owners will, will be able to build with that with more effective bottom of the funnel solutions with multiple impacts and be able to be able to more guarantee the way that they can deliver outcomes for brands from not just it being purely about reach, but actually driving people down the funnel, driving referrals in which they've got control of the of the customer journey. They've got multiple touch points into impact without a lot of that kind of ad fraud, without the impact of third party cookies, which not only affects targeting, but also affects attribution, affects things like frequency capping, affects your ability to remarket to users, all of those, all of the these kind of problems that brands are going to run into with the appreciation of third parties. If right owners can respond to effectively that, they can build really effective solutions for brands, as well as be great marketers themselves. And that whole kind of shift to D2C that we see within sports rights owners delivering OTT solutions themselves, as well as um, selling into their broadcast rights into broadcasters, 
Um, but we we see also with the likes of Nike, for example, with them one third of their their global revenues coming from direct to consumer, with forecast to be fifty percent within five years from a standing start. That ability to build big first party audiences and be able to utilize that to make yourself really effective at bottom of the funnel impact, as well as you being a great brand platform. That that that's actually something that I think will be a really positive thing that comes out of. Uh, kind of depreciation of third-party cookies because um, it will stop a lot of bad marketing practices that, that Augustine was talking about, but also third-party cookies, you know, inherently enable. Um, so, so I think there's lot, lots of opportunity for for rights owners and lots of opportunities for brands to partner with rights owners to, to deliver really effective kind of brand outcomes. There's a, a question. I mean, we've we've which this conversation has touched on a few times, which. The assumption is that the you know the big tech companies, the Facebooks of this world, know enormous amounts about us because we give them willingly enormous amounts of personal information. How much do I mean? I'm a Spurs fan. How much? And I'm not a season ticket holder. So, how much do they know about me? If Facebook knows ninety percent about me, what does Facebook know? Uh, what does Spurs know? I'm not. I'm using Spurs as a generic sort of. Yeah, a, could, be, could, could be any 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 football club um yeah. so facebook can Im, can infer you're a spurs fan they don't know you're a spurs fan so i follow spurs on social media but i'm not a spurs fan i do that because i'm a, i'm 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 a football consumer i'm interested in the premier league I've, i support another premier league club i play fantasy premier league so actually getting news from from spurs i live in london as well and look for opportunities to go and attend so that, that's lots of reasons as to why I might engage with Spurs and why in Facebook I might be classified as a as a Spurs fan. But that's a heavy inference from that. It's a heavy inference by the fact that I've engaged with Spurs content and or follow them follow them on, on social media. What Spurs know is when, but there's a big difference between someone who engages with Spurs on their direct channels to engages with them on social media and on on third party publishers. Once you get get into Spurs Spurs's website. Or on their app, you you'll be prompted to set up an account. Very few people go on and like register with to create a Spurs account unless they're a Spurs fan. When you create that account, you're capturing first you're capturing zero party and first party data. Zero part first party data is your name and address and email address, which means you're targetable as a as a Spurs fan. Um, but you're also in, indicating some things that you're interested in. So. Are you interested in coming, going to ticket, uh, going to events and buying tickets? Are you interested in Spurs merchandise and retail, etc.? Do you want to hear from Spurs with player announcements, etc.? All of that then gives that club lots of data that Facebook is inferring, but the club knows and can use that from a marketing perspective. If that club is is also set up well, they can collect data, your behavioural data through their through website, through your website and app, and can see which players you you engage with, what parts of their properties you engage with. So, do you follow the women's team as well as the men's team? Do you buy? If you start buying stuff, do you buy stuff for children or and or yourself? In which case, you know that there is this is Spurs fan with another Spurs fan in his household who's a child we now know that is a that there's a family of Spurs fans there that we can inter- interact with which we can tell them about our junior membership scheme we can tell them about our junior season tickets junior memberships 
our new junior kit, our foundation that's running a soccer school in your area because we know where you live. So that, that becomes really powerful for you as a marketer at, at that football club to be able to engage directly with data that, that is all inferred uh, on Facebook. And you've got the channels to do it. So you're not paying Facebook to reach that audience. You can, you can target them directly through your website, app, your email program, other outreach. But, all, but then also for the for Spurs' brand partners, they can use that data to really effectively activate it. So if they've got, for example, a create advertising creative in which they're using Spurs IP, and we know that if someone's a Harry Kane fan, you, you, you can surface that creative led with Harry Kane rather than creative that's led with one of the women's team or with an academy player. But if you're more, if you're, if you've got more of an interest in the academy or in the women's team, you can change that creative and suddenly you can deliver much more effective targeted solutions to an audience based on known, on real data, not inferred data, where you can guarantee good, good results against it. So as a marketing channel for you as the club and as a marketing channel for the partner of the club, that data is really valuable and is and is and is much more effective if used correctly than the, the data that, that's that's captured in your by third party publishers or your or social channels. Augustine, I'm I'm I've got a question which is to do with incentives, and obviously we all respond to incentives in various ways. But given that we know that there is a problem with digital advertising, digital marketing, why? brands still do it and spend such enormous amounts of money on it and don't seem to want they, they, they don't seem to want to hear the arguments against digital markets it's almost like that yeah there is something they've been sold initially on it and people's careers have been based on it yeah and the entire ad tech companies have gone public because of it because they made so much money through fraudulent means so I think, you know, like I said earlier, they're addicted to certain types of metrics, right? They're addicted to the super large quantities of ads they can buy through the programmatic digital, right? Previously, when they were buying from rights owners or real publishers, there's a finite number of humans. So literally, New York Times doesn't show 100% growth rates every year, right? They, they show 1% or 2% growth rates because human audiences don't change very uh, rapidly, you know, you know, very often. So for those large mainstream publishers, the growth rates were very small and the human audiences were finite. So the only places that the marketers could go to find super large quantities of ad impressions to buy was the programmatic exchanges, because magically we had all these millions upon millions of long tail websites that all have large uh, amounts of audiences generating, you know, tens of billions of ad impressions to sell, right? So they're addicted to the large quantities. They're also addicted to the low CPM prices because those sites are fake. They don't have real editors or journalists writing content, right? So basically they can sell ads at very, very low CPMs. So, uh, you know, the marketers buying from those places are now um, very used to seeing very low CPMs. So they're addicted to the low prices. And finally, you know, while they're using the bot traffic anyway, they might as well program the bots to click on the ads, right? So all of the fake sites have higher click-through rates than all of the real sites that have humans, right? Because bots click on ads a lot more than humans do. So they created this kind of confluence of three things, right? Large quantities, low prices, 
and the appearance of high performance, right? Because there are a lot more clicks coming from the bots. So then to the marketers, they've bought into this for the last 10 years, right? And I say 10 years, that's because programmatic exchanges really became mainstream in 2012, 2013, right? So it's been roughly 10 years. And because of that, you know, these are also the things that they reported to their bosses, right? They'll say, oh, well, they send a monthly Excel spreadsheet or a quarterly Excel spreadsheet that says this is uh, how many impressions we bought, the great CPM prices that we got. Right? We got really good deals on, on these uh, digital ads and we're, we're seeing huge performance, right? So when those become the reports that you show to your boss, you're going to be very hesitant to say, whoops, we made a big mistake. All of that was fake, right? So a lot of the, you know, when you talk about incentives, the marketers themselves have an incentive to cover this up. They don't want to admit it, right? But because of the pandemic uh, last year, some of these largest marketers have paused their digital marketing. Kind of, they didn't want to, right? So when everything was going along nicely, they didn't want to be the one to rock the boat. So they weren't going to proactively say, oh, let's run an experiment. Let's turn off our digital marketing, see what happens, right? Because of the pandemic in 2020, some of the largest marketers did pause their digital spending and they're finding out that nothing changed, literally nothing changed. So now before they turn the the, uh, digital budgets back on, they're doing more audits, right? They're being a little bit more uh, careful about what they turn back on. So I think this is a huge opportunity for marketers to actually do better digital marketing by cutting out more and more of the crap and actually asking harder questions. And it also means, you know, a big opportunity for, for sports marketing, for sports marketing, right? Like Phil was saying, there's so much uh, opportunity left on the table, meaning they, they haven't done it yet. Right. There's so much better marketing that can be done if they're not wasting so much money on fraudulent digital ads and low cost crap on the programmatic exchanges. Right. So as long as they buy from the rights holders, they buy direct and they don't try to go for low cost stuff off of the programmatic exchanges, they can actually avoid most of the fraud off the bat. Right. They, they don't have to try to use fraud detection, brand safety detection, all of that just helps ad tech companies make more money off of them. It's, it doesn't actually help them do better marketing, right? So it's really like this circular logic that goes on and on. It's really hard to break out of. Uh, and because of the misaligned incentives, it's perpetuated the fraud for so long. But now, you know, for the marketers who actually know what they're doing and they know how to get their ads in front of humans, they know how to read the feedback loops that they're getting in digital, digital could be very, very effective, Right. So like you said at the beginning of this podcast, um, you know, the theory of digital is the right ad to the right person at the right time. But that assumes you're getting an ad in front of a human. Right. Uh, Because of, you know, the ease and the scalability. Right. With programmatic, you know, we let algorithms run a lot of stuff. Right. So because it's made it easier for the good guys to scale their digital marketing. Uh, the same technologies have also made it easier for the bad guys to scale their fraud. So, you know, as long as we can, you know, continue buying direct from the real publishers and the real uh, rights holders, that's going to be how we can get our ads in front of humans. And that's how we can do digital marketing very effectively. Absolutely. And I think, and I think a, key, a key thing that we touched on there is like your measurement strategies, right? And just breaking yeah. that kind of addiction to looking at, 
performance marketing metrics that are delivered by the the advertise the ad tech that you're using and the and the publishers that you're using. Mm-hmm. Right, it's actually uh, we, we we did a piece of work. Um, we've done this several times, so we've looked at all of the um, the agencies who are producing like digital performance marketing for our clients or or the the ad reports that they're getting we're, we're taking all the transactions that they're claiming for all of those channels adding them up together over time period and comparing it to the e-commerce sales for, for the products that they were trying to push and that the sum is like five times as high as everything that they sold in that in that week and then it's because they're, they're not looking at actually this whole campaign is about driving sales all of the metrics that I'm getting are telling me telling me that where I'm putting my money is working. But if I then compare that to actually the underlying transactional data, the product sales that I'm trying to shift, there's a mismatch. Like it doesn't, it's yeah. not right. It cannot be right. And yeah. and and it's it's a complex question. And marketers don't want to kind of don't want to interrogate it. They yeah. want easy answers. But actually, if you're trying to impact on users, you need to. And if you want to impact on awareness and reach. You need to be measuring that in a different way than just looking at digital ad metrics. If you are trying to impact on product sales or leads generated, you need to be looking at the underlying transactional data as well as that channel data. And so pulling that all together and being and being a bit more being a bit more outcome focused and looking at the most effective way of measuring beyond just simple metrics, which again, third party cookies will the depreciation of third party cookies will mean things like view throughs and uh really hard to 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 utilize a lot of those metrics um uh, moving forward that you it will force uh, people to change the way that they measure the success of their campaigns and again that that'll be a good thing because a lot of the reporting a lot of the attribution just isn't right and doesn't work um and it's led to poor to least support marketing marketing outcomes yep phil just building on that just to we're, we're rounding off but i'm interested in We've talked about outcomes and in the generic. Is it possible just to share what do most brands come to sport to do? Is it still awareness building or brand building or some association or what other outcomes are they looking or seeking to achieve via a a sport sponsorship? Traditionally, like sport is an amazing platform to impact on awareness and impact on brand preference and consideration of, the, of that brand and that, you know, the, all the emotional impact of sport, the, the, the scale of the, of the platform, the ability to use audiences in real time uh, at vast quantities like that, that means it's just inherently good as a brand platform. But what's been happening over the last 10 years is just gradually like brands have started shifting towards beyond kind of like top of the funnel metrics to asking more about, okay, how does it shift product for me? How does it lead to more leads? How does it impact on the number of users that I have on my site, et cetera? We're much more focused on on the impact. That started off as like a trickle of brands to begin with asking that um, into more and more brands demanding this. And when two circles, we were, we provide a lot of consulting and marketing services, helping our helping our clients in sales process be able to under, be able to demonstrate the bottom of the funnel impact as well as the top of the funnel impact, and develop their rights and assets for brands who are looking for that. Um, but then, since we acquired TRM and we formed uh, a rights management function within in two circles, we're directly involved in a lot of these kind of um, these partnership negotiations and the volume of brands who are 
who are saying globally around properties that we're representing um, in APAC, in in uh, in, um, in in Europe, and and talking to global brands um, about this, the amount of of times that this comes up is almost every every other conversation, every every other partnership negotiation. They are looking precisely about how it will impact on 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 sales, on leads, on users, on on real on customer lifetime value, so real kind of bottom of the funnel metrics, as well as like selling brands on the platform has become easier. Selling um, as a brand platform has become easier. Selling them on actually the performance it can deliver for their brands on on outcomes. That that is a key thing that that kind of like two circles, um, our products and services team like collaborate with our rights management team on. Um, with our, with the properties that we're representing, on really kind of demonstrating that to brands because that is increasingly what they're what, what they're looking for. I think that's driven in part by, as I mentioned earlier, brands generally becoming becoming more focused on direct to consumer than B two B to C brand than being a B to C brand. The COVID has only has only accelerated that with this, with high street stores being closed down, selling directly. Uh, brand selling directly, but it's that's accelerated a pre-existing trend. So, my question for both of you is: is when we're getting into performance marketing, the question is always attribution, isn't it? You know, this happened because of that piece of marketing. So, the yeah. attribution model—how reliable are they still? Is it something you can see transparently, or is it still a bit of guesswork or a lot of guesswork? Um, well, nothing. None of the models are perfect. They're all imperfect. So you're choosing your degrees of imperfection. Um, but if you're if you're focused on like actually under using the right method to give you the to give you an an actual real or as close to a real answer as possible, then you're gonna then it then you can get you can get a really you can do a really effective measurement. If you're looking at inflated metrics, if you want to just take easy metrics then they'll be really really unreliable the that's why if you're a, if you're a sports property and you've got good engagement you've got a lot and you're using your first party data and you're using your own channels that is much easier so if you are if you're like activating a car partnership for an, an, with an automotive brand if you're doing that through your own channels and you're running like competitions that if you if you book a test drive by this date you get a free shirt or you get entered into a competition to win VIP tickets for this game and you're setting up that lead capture form on your properties, you can market through your social channels, through your website, through third party, capture that that data at the end of it and then pass that on as pre-qualified leads as long as it's um, permissioned correctly to your car car partner. And you can have really, you can be and be really confident that these are real people, this is good data, this is how much leads have actually been generated as a result of this partnership, and deliver a level of engagement that and with with um with for around that that partnership, which the the the, the brand is will find it hard to do, you know, outside of having control of having access to that first party data and can, and access to the channels that the rights owner own. So the more that you control the channels, the more that you control the data, the more confidence and, the, and you can blend data sources. So you can take take the data that comes from Facebook and Google and take the, the analytics data that comes from your website, take your email data, take the data from leads captured, referrals sent. 
and you can have a lot of, a lot of confidence in that. She's, she starts straying into third-party channels. You need to be really careful that you're cross-referencing that data across with the other data sources to give you a true understanding of the impact of your work, uh, of, your, of your campaigns, of your, of your activations, and not just be reliant on, on, on those kind of easy-to-find find metrics that are often misleading. Yeah, as long as you're focused on your own sales, um, that's really the key. Uh, you know, like Phil said, a lot of the marketers are just um, using the easy to collect and easy to measure metrics uh, and just reporting uh, that up the chain to their bosses. So um, those are the ones that are, that are literally getting ripped off left and right. And for some of the marketers, um, I would characterize it as the largest marketers are probably most subject to the fraud because they have just so much money to spend and they're literally looking for ways to spend it all, right? And if we're dealing with uh, you know, rights holders or real publishers, there's only finite inventory for them to buy, right? So they're, they're actually much more exposed to the, to the fraud. Um, and then the other thing is, um, even when you're looking at sales, you really need to be uh, measuring for incrementality, Right. Because like we said, some of those examples before, some of the sales would have happened anyway in the absence of the digital marketing. Right. What are the sales that were actually driven by the digital marketing? So do you have methods in place to measure for incrementality? Right? What was the lift driven by this particular marketing program, Right, whether it's sports sponsorship or digital? I would say very few marketers are actually making the effort to do it that way. Right. But if you're actually doing that, then it's going to help mitigate a lot of the inaccuracies in the data. Right. And Phil also suggested, you know, cross-referencing different data sets. Right. They actually should make sense. Right. So, you know, we've seen things like uh, Facebook reports, certain number of clicks on the ads. Right. Those clicks are supposed to come to your website. But then we look at Google Analytics on the website itself and, and we see one tenth of the number of clicks actually arriving. So when you cross-reference different data sets, you can then start asking, like, why the heck is there a 90% discrepancy between these two data sets that are supposed to match up, right? So a lot of those analytical efforts, too few people are doing it, too few advertisers are doing it. But that's a way for you to start discovering where there are discrepancies and inaccuracies of the data to then make sure, you know, you're actually getting the outcomes from your marketing programs. Yeah, absolutely. That's the brands that we're talking to talk about incrementality more and more. The, the, right, the right centers that we're talking to are looking at incrementality. And that's why it's kind of a shift away. We hear performance marketing used a lot less and growth marketing used a lot more. Um, so looking at genuinely full funnel marketing solutions to deliver growth and looking at incremental growth, growth that wouldn't have happened anyway, growth that has happened because of the marketing intervention that's been made. And 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 that's why kind of just bringing back to uh, bring to my original point that you know sports marketing and again that kind of addiction to performance marketing metrics has led to optimizing on CPA and just and actually you know Adidas like famously realized that if you if you optimize to bottom of the funnel you're not filling up your funnel and at some point your marketing becomes less effective and it takes a long time to retro engineer that um, and get it and so. Thinking of, that's why I think there's increased interest in, in sports marketing app, filling the funnel with genuine impact on audiences that isn't delivered by ad fraud and isn't, um, and, and is to guarantee audiences of scale and a real time in brand safe environments. That's an amazing kind of 
awareness drive on top of the funnel, filling the funnel impact, and then then focus on growth marketing to deliver incrementality at the, at the bottom end. If sports can deliver on both of those, and there's no reason why sports shouldn't be the most effective channel in doing that, then it's really well situated to to succeed in the, with the depreciation of third party cookies and the disruption to the industry that will result as that, which could deliver a lot of good um, improved marketing practices. So that requires change on behalf of brands and it requires change on behalf of of rights owners. But we, we, we see increasing evidence of brands asking for this and rights owners, rights owners evolving to deliver these type of solutions for brands. Um, and I think that will just that's be something to be accelerated by by these changes. Like the privacy enforcement is actually helping uh, marketers, you know, accidentally do better digital marketing. So yeah, I completely agree with that. <laughs> yep. Okay, I think that's a great place to end, and and I think the message I've got is buy more sports sponsorship. That's that's clearly the, the route forward. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm I'm intrigued about the bad guys. You know, the ad tech. The, the bad actors in the ad tech environment, because what I know about bad guys generally from the movies is that they don't give up easily and they may well find a way around a workaround to try and, you know, still make money they're, and they're not going to go away. So, Yes, for sure. Uh, they're already working around it and many ad tech companies are already finding workarounds to privacy right now. Okay. That's another podcast, but in the meantime, yeah. August, Dr. Augustine Fu and Phil Stefan, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Richard. Thank you.